ahead and turn to Psalms. Uh, we'll be in Psalm 42 and 43 this morning. And I'm sorry I did not look it up in the Pew Bible. If someone finds it, yell it out. 554? Five, five, there you go. 554. Five, oh, there's a couple different Pew Bibles. 469. Okay, 469 or 554. Five, just check those. Or you could just look at the table of contents. <clears throat> We'll make it. We got time. All right, are we there? Good. All right, so we've talked about, you know, in the past a lot how the Psalms are the prayer book of God's people and have been for a long time. Um, but we have to remember, too, it's not just a prayer book. It's, it's a book of songs, it's really the best-selling album of all time, if you think about it. These are songs, and this one is no different. It says, to the choir master. This is a song. And in our, you know, a little bit of our Western dissection of, of these words, we have to keep in mind that they are songs. They're pieces of music, pieces of art, um, and as you all know, some of the best pieces of, of art, some of the best pieces of music, some of the best songs have come through suffering. You know, I have a friend who's, who's uh, musically inclined, and he's going through a really hard time right now. And he, just kind of offhand, he was like, oh, maybe I need to write a song. Maybe I, maybe I just need to go write a song. <laughs> I don't relate with that because I'm not a singer-songwriter, Type, but we know that some of the best, most resonant music and song comes through suffering. It comes through times of difficulty. And so, even though we're not all singer-songwriters, we are all invited by God to bring and express our innermost thoughts, our innermost feelings to Him. And a couple weeks ago, using Psalm 13, we learned sort of the basic steps of lament. And lament is a passionate expression of grief. It's an emotional, emotion-filled expression of honest grief. And, you know, we learned the steps of that. What are the, what are the A through Z of lament? And we looked at Psalm 13 for that. And that can be helpful as we sort of learn this language. It's really a language that we're learning. And, and, you know, if you've ever learned a new language, you start with the basics, right? You start with the alphabet. You start with the basic rules of grammar and sentence structure. But you don't stop there. And we all know with, with um, guidelines and rules of language, they're almost meant to be broken. They're meant to be stretched and used to their limits. And the psalm that we're looking at this morning does just that. The basics are there. The, the elements of lament are there, but they're all intermixed. They're, they're being used in a very artistic way. 
the, the language of lament is being stretched to its limits with this psalm. And even at times, the psalmist, he mixes complaint and confidence in the same sentence. So really, in many ways, this song is like the top 40 of today. We can resonate with it because it's... It, it puts off that vibe. It's, it's like a modern song. It has three verses, and it has a chorus. It repeats the chorus three times. So it's no wonder that we can resonate with this ancient song. And essentially, this song is about anxiety and depression. And so no wonder. We can, we can relate to it. We can learn from it. You know, I'd venture to say that most of us experience feelings of anxiety or depression to some degree on a regular basis. You know, when I was in nursing school learning about mental health and, and mental illness, I and, and my classmates came away pretty much from every lecture thinking, we have all of those things. Learning about depression, learning about uh, bipolar, learning about all these, these things, I, we, we were all like, wait a minute. <laughs> we felt like the textbook was talking about us. And if you're in that field, if you're in the medical field, if you're in the mental health field, you know it's on a spectrum. That mental illness, mental health is a spectrum, and we're all on it. And some of us have it worse than others. I'm not going to sugarcoat that. You know, some of us need acute medical intervention, acute psychological intervention, and some experience worse traumas than others. And so that's true. But all of us, every single one of us, deals with feelings of despair, feelings of anxiety. And last week, we learned how to lament when our physical bodies turn against us or turn against our loved ones. But this week, we're going to learn, what about when our minds turn on us? You know, what about when we have unexplained, unhelpful, unreasonable even thoughts and feelings? Do we have any biblical precedent on how to bring these feelings to God in lament? Yes. So we're going to look at Psalm 42 and 43. Before we read the two of these psalms, I wanted to just let you know that they're basically one psalm. And most commentators, most scholars believe that they were at one point together. Uh, and you'll see why. Because the chorus is shared. Much, much language is shared. There's a subheading for 42 and not for 43. So it seems to be indicative of them being one psalm. So we're going to treat them as one psalm today. So let's start reading in verse 1 of chapter 42. We'll read the subheading first. To the choir master, a maskil of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? 
These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Verse 2. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Back to the chorus. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Final verse. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we come before you. We know you are the just judge. Lord, you you are above all. And yet you regard us. And yet a psalm like this is here reminding us that you look at us not with ignorance, Lord, you understand what we're like. You understand the things that go on in our hearts and our minds. And you invite us to cast our cares upon you because you care for us. Help us, Lord, to learn how to do that. Help us to be able to do that and grow in our faith and grow in our trust of you because you are our salvation. I pray that your word would teach us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so here we have this song. Did you notice the, the three-peated chorus and the three verses? And right up front, in the first two lines of verse one, we have the, the root. We have the foundation for these troublesome feelings. Right there, it says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. The psalmist has given us the answer to the chorus's 
three times repeated question, which is, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? He gives the answer up front. He's thirsty. He's thirsty. He has a soul-level thirst for God. These intense feelings of depression, dejection, downness, anxiety, turmoil within him are check engine lights for his soul. His soul is thirsty for God. His soul needs more of God, the living God, he says. Right away we see the cause of the songwriter's mental problems. He needs God. He needs God as desperately as an animal needs fresh water. And we, we don't understand desperate thirst because we have fresh, clean water in every building we enter. All of our lives, most of us. But wild animals spend every waking moment of their lives pursuing access to water. That's what they live for. That's what they think about every minute. Where can I find water? We don't get that because we have it. Easy. But animals don't. (laughs) I did that. The psalmist in the opening line of the song is pronouncing humanity as dependent on God for every need just like our bodies are dependent on water. And so his theme of the song, what I would maybe title the song, is soul thirst. So let's listen to each verse of this song, and then we'll settle on the chorus at the end. So verse 1 deals with despair over a lost joy. In verses 1 through 5, he says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. So here in verse 1 of this song, we see despair over the joy that's been lost. And this verse 1, it contains some of these stages of lament that we're talking about. And first, it starts with the address, Oh God. But mostly, in verse 1, we see complaint. Mostly we see complaint And his context is one of deep and desperate thirst for God's presence. And he's in the midst of people who discount God. People who look at his suffering and say, where's your God? And also, he's in the midst of fading memories of the joy he once had with God. Now, it's difficult enough to be in a season where you're you're having to ask yourself, where is God? That's a hard place to be. And it's one of the basic questions of lament. Where are you, God? Where were you, God? That's where lament stems from. 
But it can be even more difficult if those you consult with during that time confirm your suspicions. You know, I want to be able to ask myself the question, where is God? Without other people around me coming along and asking me, where is your God? That's a difficult question to ask. It's, it's vulnerable, especially for someone who, who wants to place their trust in God to be able to say, where are you, God? That's painful. And especially for this songwriter who he remembers a time when he wasn't asking these difficult questions. There in verse 4, he used to go with the throng, go with the people and lead them. He used to be at the front. He used to be front row, hands raised, eyes closed, excited about being in God's presence. He remembers that things weren't always this way. His faith used to be more simple. He used to be confident in God's goodness and presence and provision. And so it hurts him all the more to be in a season of turmoil and doubt. Do you see how at the very least, this psalm's existence in the canon of Holy Scripture validates your humanness, your up-and-downness, We humans are not robots. We are not completely steady consistently. This psalm confirms God's awareness of that and understanding of that. The beauty is that he invites us to share that undulation, that up and down reality of your soul. He invites you to share that with him. So the psalmist here is dealing with soul thirst, constant sadness. He says, my tears have been my food day and night. He's lost his appetite because of what's going on. He's experiencing relational trouble and hurt in having lost this former joy. And so he takes all of it and he writes this verse and and then he enters the first chorus. Which says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. We're going to land at the chorus at the very end, but notice first, though. We'll get there. Stick around. But notice that in the chorus, the address changes. He's no longer talking to God. He's talking to himself. Do you see that? He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? He changes the address of the lament inward. But let's jump to verse 2, verses 6 through 11 of of Psalm 42, which is despair over distance and circumstance. He says, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. We'll just pause and say, this is over 250 kilometers from the temple. He's distant from God. He says, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. 
By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? So this psalmist was an Israelite. And he longed to be at the temple, the place where God established his ancient presence on earth. If you wanted to experience the presence of God at this time, you had to go someplace, the temple. But he's far away. If you look up Mount Mizar or Mount Hermon today, it's a ski resort. It's a mountain. It's far away from the temple mount. It was a long journey to get there. He hates the fact that he's far from God. He hates it. And not only is he far from the presence of God in Jerusalem, he is overwhelmed by his difficult circumstances. He longs for, as he said in the first couple lines, the quiet stream that can satisfy his thirsty soul. But he is surrounded by raging waters and waterfalls that are pulling him under. Last week in Psalm 102, the psalmist pointed his finger at God because of his physical pain. He said, you have taken me up and you have thrown me down. And right here, this psalmist points at these waters and calls them gods. Your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Have any of you been body surfing? Have you ever been body surfing in a place where you shouldn't have been body surfing because it was too, those waves are too high? It's the kind of wave that when, it, when it's ready to crash, the water under it, it completely disappears and it's just sand, and then you get thrown onto the sand. Horrible. Scary. That's what he says is happening. That God's waves and breakers have taken him up and are throwing him down. He's feeling like he is in that place. And God's the one doing it. He's feeling far from God. He's feeling like God is unreachable from where he currently stands. And he's underwater. Which is worse? You know, feeling distant from God or being in the midst of overwhelming circumstances. But the truth is that they inform one another, right? If you're feeling distant from God, then troubling circumstances feel heavier. They're going to have more weight when you're feeling distant from God. And oftentimes, when we're overwhelmed with our circumstances, it feels as if God is distant. And so it's a vicious cycle. We're feeling far from God, and then all of a sudden we're sinking. So it's no wonder here that the psalmist starts to mix his complaint with confidence. You know, verse 8 is a beautiful, confident statement of trust and faith. He says, By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. You know, he, he says in faith, even at this distance, God can send his love. Even at this distance, we are connected through prayer. But then comes verse 9. 
He says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Which is it? You know, is God your rock, your solid ground, your place to stand, your foundation? Or has he forgotten you? You see how he mixes confidence with complaint? God, you're my rock. Why have you forgotten me? And then once again, these categories are, are all mixed up. We have enemies. We have feeling forsaken by God. We have emotional pain. There's an escalation that's happening here. You know, in verse 1, there were people around, but they weren't called enemies. In verse 1, they were saying, yeah, yeah, where is your God? But in verse 2, they're now taunting him. Where is your God? And so we have an escalation happening between verses. And now he complains of oppression from his enemies. They're still saying, where is your God? But it hurts more. Maybe they are offering unhelpful and untrue advice. You know, maybe they're like Job's friends who are standing around watching Job pick at his sores and saying, look at you. Is this someone beloved by God? Is this someone who's pleased God in any way? I doubt it. Maybe they're saying things like, why hasn't your God helped you beat your depression? Why hasn't your God cured your anxiety yet? If he's real and you haven't upset him, why is he treating you so poorly? You know, I could see how that could become, as he says in verse 10, a deadly wound in his bones, gnawing at him. And so, once again, in faith, the psalmist, despite an escalation in his situation, turns again to the chorus. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Let's jump into verse 3, starting in verse 1 of chapter 43, which is despair and dependence for deliverance. He says, vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. And so here in verse 3, the escalation that has been happening in these verses reaches its peak. Whereas before there were enemies taunting and there was oppression, now the psalmist is surrounded by people who hate God and hate God's ways. The psalmist now turns to bold requests for vindication and deliverance in the midst of injustice. Those who were making fun of him before are now arrogantly mistreating him. Here we have the peak of his difficult 
experience. But he is still mixing confidence with his complaint. Did you see in verse 3, excuse me, verse 2, he says, For you are the God in whom I take refuge. That sounds familiar. In verse 9 of chapter 42, he said, I say to God, my rock. So his confidence has escalated. He, He now says, you're not just my rock, my solid place to stand. Now you are my refuge. Now you are not just a solid place to stand, but you're a solid place around me, protecting me from attack. But it's not just his confidence that has escalated again. It's his complaint. He says, you're the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Whereas before he said, why have you forgotten me? God hasn't just forgotten him now, but has rejected him. Now, being forgotten hurts. But being rejected hurts worse. The psalmist is still in the throes of his mental struggle with depression, with anxiety, with dejection, with turmoil. And he's, he's throwing up a beautiful complaint that's full of confidence and yet accusation. And we'll see in the chorus that there are things we can do in the face of these difficult emotions, these difficult mental struggles. But, as we'll see here right now in verse 3, there also needs to be an awareness of our simple yet total need for God to rescue us. Now in verse 3, he just, he throws it all out there and he recognizes he cannot save himself. He's completely and totally in need of God's rescue. This final escalation is an awareness not just that he's thirsty for God, but that he needs God to be the one to deliver him from this mess. How does he ask for this rescue? In verse 3, he requests that God send out God's light and his truth. Light represents clarity. Light is the first thing God created in Genesis. And it comes at his word. Now, when we're in a foggy place, when we're in a blurry place, when we're in a dark night of the soul, God is the one who has the power to say, let there be light. And all of a sudden, we can have hope again. Things won't always be this way. All of a sudden, we can have joy again. That life is good because God is good. All of a sudden, we can have peace again. I can rest in God's salvation, not mine. I cannot save myself. And the psalmist also asks for truth. When we're in this dark place, the enemy does his best work. And what is the enemy's primary tactic? Lies. When we are in these dark places, that's when more than ever we need God's truth. When we need to choose to believe God's truth over the other lies that we are surrounded by on all sides. 
And isn't it true that when we feel distant from God, overwhelmed by our circumstances, we're more vulnerable to these lies. We're more vulnerable to, to doubting God, to, to accepting those doubts as reality, not as doubts to wrestle and lament through. And it's harder to believe the truth that God loves you, that he's delighted in you, that he has good for you, that he isn't a harsh taskmaster, but a tender-hearted, dad-joke-loving father who wants to hear your deepest longings and to meet them with himself, which is the only thing that can meet those deepest longings. Now, verse 3 ends with a hope-filled expectation. God's light and truth can and will bring this psalmist all the way home where he longs to go. And it says, To God, my exceeding joy. Another translation says, The God who gives me ecstatic joy. Ecstatic joy. When's the last time you experienced ecstatic joy? Have you ever? You know, in God, we have hope that one day, even if it's not in this life, we will experience ecstatic joy. So finally, he turns to the chorus once again for the last time where the address isn't to God but to himself. He says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. It's interesting that we're talking about mental health, mental illness, issues like anxiety and depression, and this chorus, I kid you not, basically lays out the tenets of cognitive behavioral therapy. Let me show you. Cognitive behavioral therapy is, is a, it's a scientific psychological tool used by psychologists and things that basically says this. Life and psychological problems can be divided into three categories. Feelings, thinking, and behavior. Psycholog psychological problems typically affect the feeling category. And as we all know, it's very difficult, nigh impossible, to change your feelings. But what this method, CBT, attempts to do is to help people change their thinking and behavior with the hopes that the feelings will follow. You know, have you ever been in a place of of depression, of darkness, and you go for a run, and at the end of the run, you feel better? That is that in motion. That is this in action. It doesn't always work, but it does sometimes. The chorus of this psalm teaches us that we might not be able to change our feelings, but we can do these three things. First, we can interrogate our feelings. Second, we can adjust our thinking in light of the hope we have in God. Third, we can adjust our behavior in light of the past faithfulness of God. So first, interrogation. 
After despairing over his lost joy in verse 1, his distance from God in verse 2, and his desperation in verse 3, the psalmist turns and he interrogates these feelings. He says to himself, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Why are you depressed? Why are you anxious? Why? You know, he doesn't try to change these feelings or ignore them. He just questions them. Just simple questions. Why am I feeling this way? What is going on in me that is manifesting in these feelings? These are perfectly reasonable and healthy questions to ask. Why? Because although feelings are true, they don't always tell the truth. After interrogating his feelings without trying to change them, he moves on to what he can do, which is change his thinking and change his behavior. Firstly, his thinking. What does he say? Hope in God. Simple. It's a simple message that he preaches to his own soul. Listen up, soul. Hope in God. Do it. He's made a few requests of God throughout the song, but in this chorus, he makes this request of himself. In that word hope, it also means wait. Because that's what hope is, right? It's it's a waiting. It's putting stock in something that hasn't happened yet. That's what he says. Wait on God. The the American Psychological Association describes their strategy to modify problematic thinking. This is how they describe it. Learning to recognize one's distortions in thinking that are creating problems and then to reevaluate them in light of reality. I love that. In light of reality. When you are in Christ... Do you have a valid reason to hope, no matter what? If Jesus is who he says he is, and the hope he gives is as real as he said it is, then the reality is you always have a reason to put your hope in God. Always to wait on God for his rescue. So he changes his thinking. And next, he changes his behavior. He says, For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He doesn't wait for the feelings to come after changing his thinking. He jumps straight to the next intervention, changing his behavior. For I shall again, what? Praise him. Is praise a feeling? No, it's a verb, it's an action. I shall again praise him. Is it possible to praise God in the midst of doubting him? To praise God in the midst of being frustrated by him? Of feeling rejected by him? Well, the psalmist says it is. He just finished laying out his frustrations with God. He just finished laying out his doubts of God. He just finished pointing the finger at God and saying, your waves are the waves that are crashing over me. But then he says, hope in God, I'm going to praise him in the midst. 
And notice he says, again. He's praising God again because God has been faithful in the past. So even when our soul is depressed, even when we are in turmoil within, we can do these things. We can acknowledge that our feelings don't tell the whole story. We can decide to put our hope in God and we can praise God. God isn't asking any more of you than that. If that's all you can do, that's enough. God is not asking you to fix your feelings. The question you need to ask yourself is, if my feelings never improve, will I still cling to this God? That's a question you have to answer. Because you're going to enter some seasons where your feelings seem to never get better, and you have to answer that question. Will I still trust God? For the psalmist, the answer is yes. Is he worth it? Now, we started this psalm with the acknowledgement that all of these dark feelings stem from the same place. This deep down soul level thirst for God. You know, this thirst will not be fully quenched until we face Jesus face to face. There's always going to be a gnawing thirst in our souls for God in this life. Whether or not you're a Christian this morning, we all have this soul thirst. All of us. We all have a hole in our hearts and we're trying to fill it with any number of things. The truth is that there is only one thing that can fill it. One thing. Now, God isn't asking for you to give your life to him because you're supposed to. He's asking you to give your life to him because it's what your soul longs for. It's the only thing that makes sense. What you are longing for is available to you. Listen to these promises. Let them wash over you this morning. It's from 700 plus years before Jesus came. It says, When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. And then Isaiah says this, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which is not satisfy? We're all thirsty. And we've all at times invested our time, our money, our energy into things that do not satisfy that thirst. But you can drink of the living water without price because it has already been fully paid for by Jesus. He is God's light and God's truth that will ultimately lead us to the God who gives us ecstatic joy for eternity. 
He is the one who says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John makes clear that that was the promise of the Holy Spirit that would come on all who cry out to Jesus for salvation. And that's our promise for today. So there's an answer for this soul thirst. Praise God. But we all will still hold a certain measure of that thirst until that day. So what do we do with it? Do we run and lament in his direction? Or do we let those doubts fester and grow? Let's pray. Dear Father God, we just thank you so much that you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but would have eternal life. We thank you that this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Father, I pray for every person here that they would recognize their Jesus-shaped need and thirst right now. Whether they've put their trust in Him for 30-plus years or are just now realizing it for the first time, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, draw them to drink the thirst from the living waters that Jesus provides. And because of Jesus, pour out your Holy Spirit into our hearts that we might know the love of God that is poured out for us. Thank you. Help us to live a life of thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen.